with Clubhouse, especially and now everyone's like, hey, there's a lot of interest in that particular type of engagement where you have a, you know, some people are the host, but anyone can join it. It, it could potentially go to anyone and it's open to anyone. I, I think we are seeing this sort of like new wave of content moderation issues. And I strongly suspect, right, like every company will have to deal with these on their own spaces. I mean, I, for one, am very curious how they will respond to this because you can imagine, right, like text is scalable to 10,000 rows or 10 million messages in a way that audio is not scalable if you have 10,000 rooms going on at the same time. I'm Quinta Jurecic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 22nd, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. This week, Evelyn Duick and I talked to Sean Lee, who until recently was the head of trust and safety at Discord, a social platform you may not have heard of, but that you should definitely start paying attention to. Discord is experiencing phenomenal growth and is an established player in a space that is now the hot new thing, audio social media. And as the head of trust and safety, Sean's team is responsible for mitigating all the bad stuff that happens on platform. So we asked Sean what it's like to have that kind of power, to be the eponymous arbiter of truth of a slice of the internet. We also discussed what makes content moderation of live audio content different from the kind we normally talk about, namely text-based platforms. As almost every social media platform is trying to get into audio, what should they be prepared for? It's the Lawfare Podcast. April 22nd, The Challenges of Audio Content Moderation. Sean, so good to have you here. So Discord is going gangbusters. Its monthly visits went from 60 million at the start of 2020 to over 750 million by the end of it. By one count, adult users spent more time on Discord in January than they did on Twitter, Snapchat, or Reddit. It was second only to Facebook. Microsoft is reportedly in talks to buy it for $10 billion or more. And yet I'm going to guess that for most of our listeners, and maybe those that have kids accepted, this may well be the first time <laughs> they've ever heard of Discord. So um, maybe we can start really basic. What is Discord? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, Discord is a uh, effectively a communications platform. It is a web um, application. It's a desktop application. It's a mobile application. And really, the goal for Discord is just to be a sort of one one place for you to have all of the conversations with your friends, with your communities, um, where you can find communities based around your interests. You can create your own servers, as they're called, and hang out. It was originally back in, gosh, 2015, 2016, right? Like aimed at uh, and started really targeted at gamers. And since then, I think what we've all seen is that it really fulfilled a need because it was text and voice and video. It really fulfilled a place for um, anyone to start a community. And so in sort of early 2020, there was actually a lot of work done to sort of try and let the broader audience, let the world really know that it, it wasn't just this thing for gamers, but really it was for everyone. And so one of the things that's different about Discord from a lot of these other social media platforms is that it's primarily audio, right? So can you describe sort of what the typical Discord server looks like in terms of number of users? What do they do? How do they interact over audio and other media? 
Yeah, absolutely. Typical is is I think a little bit hard because the the use cases are are so broad on Discord. Really, we we've seen everything from you know small five maybe ten person like very small closed friend group servers where people are you know again maybe started because they were playing a game and they mostly just use Discord to hang out while they are playing whatever sort of the game of the week is. All the way up to I think the largest servers now are. Seven, maybe eight hundred thousand people, all centered around sort of a specific interest. I think the the Animal Crossing server is really big. They tend to be game servers, the big ones. But uh, yeah, so it, it sort of right. Hopefully, at least I think it serves every use case from the small ten person servers all the way up to the you know couple hundred thousand or maybe even one day million person servers. And to your point, yes, very much sort of a balance of audio and text. We find that sort of the audio is the nice like drop in because you don't right, especially in sort of COVID times, very much sort of. I think everyone has gotten used to Zoom and everyone has gotten used to scheduling meetings and being like, ah, yes, like this is when I have to show up for for the Zoom meeting. Discord sort of from its inception had this idea of like, well, there's going to be this audio room that is there, this channel that's there, and anyone can drop in or drop out as as they see fit. There's no need to sort of schedule anything. And so, you know, if it's after work and you're like, hey, I'm going to hang out and just see who else might want to join me, you can drop into that channel and then sort of sit there. And sometimes people join you. Sometimes, of course, they don't. But it's much less, I think, like, right, like it allows for those sort of more casual social interactions. And then there's still the text chat there. So that, of course, right, like when you can't hang out when people are busy, you still have that sort of asynchronous backing. So it's kind of, I guess, for for us, at least, it was very much sort of the idea of like a unified single platform that allows for this like easy drop in, drop out, and then also for this like continuous background of communication. You were the head of trust and safety at Discord until very recently. And I think trust and safety is sort of a, an industry euphemism right now, which may soon become <laughs> as widely known as, you know, CFO or something like that. But for right now, it's probably a term that many people haven't heard. Can you just tell us what it means in normal English? In, in normal English, trust and safety is effectively being responsible for all of the bad things that happen on the platform. (laughs) It it ends up being sort of, I think the majority of it ends up being uh, handling effectively user disputes, right? Situations where when you have a user-generated content platform, when you have a platform where people are interacting with each other, of course, some of those people are not going to get along. Some of those people are not going to be very nice people. And so trust and safety is the function that that sort of handles that, that resolves those disputes, that makes sure that users, the people are not hurting each other, that also they are you know, not hurting the platform itself. I think in, in some cases, maybe the easy way of putting it is that trust and safety, I think in most places ends up being the, the sort of government of the platform, if you will. Cool. So you built the Discord trust and safety team from the ground up, I believe. I think you were the first hire. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And so was there something that prompted Discord to be like, oh, no, we need more trust and safety uh, amongst our (laughs) users? Or, you know, what, what prompted that? And I guess also, you know, what changed in the role of trust and safety over the course of your time there? I think pretty much all companies... Uh, that deal with this sort of content, at least, go through a kind of a similar evolutionary cycle where you start out with a support organization. You have a customer support organization that handles sort of 
password requests, account requests, sort of general stuff like that. And I think the more sort of UGC you have, the more support starts to have to handle those issues. As your platform gets bigger, as you hit, I don't know, 100,000 users, maybe a million users, you start seeing some of those issues where people will write in and they will be like, hey, this person said this like super you know, offensive thing, or this person is doing hate speech or whatever the case may be. And it's usually, I think, about that point in time when support is usually actually the, the organization, I think, that raises their hand and they're like, hey, I don't I don't know what what is happening here and and I'm not right like they didn't take that job to deal with people maybe sending all sorts of inappropriate material to each other or adult content or whatever and I think that's usually in most companies life cycles when when they start looking for a trust and safety team I think that that is also the case for Discord simultaneously I think as support starts getting sort of overburdened with those requests there may often be news cycles around sort of a mishandling or a incorrect handling or what what have you of one of those requests and I think those things sort of go hand in hand right so internally you have some pressure from your support organization that says help and then externally maybe there's a press cycle or a news article or something that says hey this company is is not sort of thinking about it so I think that's that's the general genesis um, and it certainly was for discord in terms of changes, woo. I mean, I think the most interesting thing, right, is that especially over the past half a decade, the societal expectations and I think the the general actually like understandings of trust and safety have have grown. And I think as a result of that, the much more what I would sort of label libertarian ideals of, of maybe a decade ago when it was fine to say, you know what, we're just a speech platform, all speech is good speech, right, that's the end of it, have, have definitely shifted, right? And the, I think that in today's sort of day and age, it becomes very much more everyone has become much more hands-on, I would say, about the content. It is no longer acceptable to sort of sit back and say, yes, like anything goes. And I think the companies that choose to let anything go are generally not places that you want to be. And so I think that has changed. And and because of that evolution in society, trust and safety has had to come up with more policies, more processes, more enforcement to understand what should be taken down and, and how to effectively go about it. So our podcast is titled Arbiters of Truth in a half facetious reference to the constant Zuckerberg and now others refrain that platforms should not be the arbiters of truth. But of course, content moderation is, in some sense, the the task of deciding what content to allow or not, not always on the basis of truth, of course, but it always involves the evaluation of the social meaning of speech and its value and its harm. And at Discord, that was your job. Um, You said before it was sort of like running a mini government. So What's it like having that kind of power? Like, was it fun or terrifying? Mostly terrifying, right? Like, uh, maybe 100% terrifying, always terrifying. It's, it, it is a ton of responsibility. And I think that anyone who is in a position like this understands that responsibility. No one, no one wakes up as I think a, you know, a head of trust, safety or policy and says, ah, yes, like today is the day when I'm going to like randomly kick some users off for, for fun. Right. I I think it ends up being this very sort of serious process where you understand that there is this responsibility of making sure that the users on the platform, that, that the people you know, the citizens, if you will, of, of your, your platform 
are are happy, are are healthy, are safe. I think safety, of course, always comes first. I I do think that there is this really interesting, like I think in some sense, right? Like sort of looking at as that that sort of government analogy. I think one of the most interesting things is that you can often iterate on your policies faster than a normal government would be able to. So. You can see that a new harm is coming around the horizon. Maybe it's deep fakes. Maybe it's some specific type of misinformation. Maybe it's a specific bad actor, right? Um, some nation state actor is doing insert thing here. And you can iterate on sort of how to respond to that extremely quickly because, you know, it is a, a sort of government that, that you control. And so you can say, oh, let me see if I can tackle maybe non-consensual pornography this way. And then you get the data back almost instantaneously. And maybe you look at that data for seven days, two weeks, a month, and then you say, no, that, that didn't quite hit the mark. I'm still, you know, I'm still allowing this content through and I don't want to allow that content through. And you can change that. And so, I mean, I, 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 what I would say is that in its best form, I think that it, allows for the best of governments, right? It allows for a group of individuals to come in, make intelligent, good policies that is based on real world, scientific, sociological, historical data, and then to try and sort of make the best society that that they think that can exist, right? The most inclusive, the one where the most people feel like they belong. One of the interesting things about this space is that people who maybe haven't thought so much about it, often will respond to descriptions of difficult cases by saying sort of, well, you know, it's it's so easy, right? Like, just, just take the bad stuff down and fix it. <laughs> um, are there particular cases that stand out in your mind as challenging? <laughs> Just, you know, every, every day, every minute, maybe. No, I, I see that all the time, right? Like I, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot and, and it is so frustrating. And yeah, I think actually in a lot of ways, like so understandable when, especially I think when you're confronted with a single case where you're like, well, obviously the correct answer is to do X, right? And, and I think certainly there have been some attempts to, to sort of disabuse people of those notions. Um, there have been, I think, fun things that, that Mike Masnick, if I remember, have done at like the content moderation at scale conferences and, and other places where you're like, hey, let's just pull the audience and see what you would do in a situation. And right, this room of experts does, does very different things. I, I think what I would say is that I think it is easier to contemplate all of the gray area when on a daily basis you get a hundred cases along the spectrum, right? I think that in, on, on Twitter most frequently it's like, oh, this one case. And, and you look at this one case and maybe, for example, it is a case that a big social media company got wrong. And you say, well, how could they possibly get that wrong? But I think, right, if you sort of take it in context and you're like, well, actually, right, like even assuming that there's no operational challenges, the the team that is responsible for doing this sees a thousand cases, some that are very obviously good, some that are very obviously wrong, and then a whole bunch of things in the middle. I think in in really like in in a lot of cases it is it reminds me very much of sort of the judicial system and and the judicial context where you look at a you know the the jury renders its decision, maybe they reach the decision that a crime has been committed, and you as a judge sit there and you're like, "Well, how do I do sentencing and there are some guidelines right but really in your head you are thinking about all of the mitigating factors, maybe some aggregating factors, and you say, oh, well, you know, is this person likely to reoffend?" And you're sort of judging all of those things and you render out a sentence. But a similar judge in a right, similar case may come out with a very different sentence based on what they believe. 
I, I think sort of to give like specific examples, the most interesting ones are, I would say, the ones where it is people doing the wrong things for the right reasons or vice versa, right? I think it is usually pretty easy when someone is doing a wrong thing for a wrong reason, when someone is doxing someone in order to swat them, wrong thing, wrong reason, obviously bad, right? When someone is you know, a good actor, you never see them, it's fine. There have been cases where people have reported, for example, where they dox someone in order to try and find out some physical location information because that person was in danger of self-harm or expressed self-harm thoughts. And so I think that presents a really interesting challenge, right, for a platform where you're like, well, your action is wrong. Your, you know, your, your mental state, if you will, is, is probably okay. Like what sort of a sentence or what sort of a crime does that actually constitute? And like I said, you see sort of a thousand of these a day, right? And so those are, I think, the most interesting things where you're, you're trying to do really a lot of like determining the intent and then also figuring out in your sort of like government of laws, right? Like how severely you should punish something like that, right? So doxing is obviously an example. It happens across people who are engaging in sort of political conversation or ver- veering into hate speech. It happens on the child safety side. I guess the way that I would put it actually is that all of the the black and white cases are very are very obvious, are very easy, and they they are not usually actually the ones that come up that people discuss. It is the sort of like stuff in the middle that we see all the time that that I think a lot of people lose sleep over or they craft very extensive policy around or they they sort of right like that's the stuff that I think is most interesting and also most painful to try and sort of figure out what the correct answer is. Honestly, it sounds like the most stressful job in the world. Like, I like to just sit on the (laughs) sidelines and throw rocks. Uh, I would not want to be in that chair in any circumstance, I don't think. And to make it worse, trust and safety issues are also, you know, famously haunting. Like, your job is often to stare at the worst of the internet and of humanity all day, every day, and to try and make sure that the rest of us don't have to see it. What was that like? And how do you, I don't want to ask you, like, how did you find the will to live while you were working there? But like, how do you find fulfillment? What what makes it worth it to, to go through something so horrific? I mean, I I think so. So a couple of thoughts there. One of the things is that I don't know that it has to be sort of all horrific all the time. I think that there are certainly cases and I think work conditions that lead to to not great outcomes, right? Casey Newton, I think, has written sort of at great length about this, and, and I think very rightfully so. And I think that there are sort of like conditions that are very hard. I don't know that all conditions in, in trust and safety are like that. So I think that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing, though, is that, again, sort of, I guess, returning to, to the government metaphor, I guess it's not really a metaphor. I guess the way that I put it is that, you know, I think that in the same way that some of our, you know, our law enforcement officials, members of the judiciary, right, all across the executive branch, like they see some pretty terrible things as well and or are charged with, right, like their job is to prosecute those terrible things. And that requires pretty up close and personal contact with those things. And yet, I think that overall, they certainly, to my knowledge at least, don't have the burnout rate that trust and safety as an industry, you know, currently has. And I think that in large part, that is because of that you you derive some some fulfillment, I think, some enjoyment, some uh, satisfaction, I guess is how I would put it, over doing the right thing, 
right? That at the end of the day, the trust and safety job is not, or at least doesn't have to be just a like, oh yes, I am, you know, in the worst case scenario, again, like looking at porn or beheading videos or whatever all day, but instead it really is. And I think the goal should be right to create an industry and a, a culture and a job function where it's like, what are we doing to protect people? right? That technology is this tool that has allowed for great connectivity and that has allowed people to find each other, ideas to flourish, technology to develop, et cetera, et cetera, right? At the same time, though, as with many tools, there is a serious, I think potential is not even the right word here. There's just serious misuse out there. And trust and safety sort of exist to, to protect people. And so I think I, you know, I wake up in the mornings and I am happy to do the job because I think that it is about trying to make the society a better place, right? Trying to put in place the policies, the procedures, the support, the tools, the technology, the whatever it is, right? To make sure that these sort of like bad behaviors, right? These behaviors that hurt other people, they go down. And I think every time that someone writes in and says, hey, I've been hurt, and you can respond to that person and say, you know, we took X action, we did Y, whatever. And that person says, hey, thank you so much. Like this was, you know, this was really weighing on me. And, and I'm glad to see that you're, you're making this better. And I feel happy participating, right? Like I think that is, that's what we all go for, right? We, we want to minimize the bad. We want to maximize the good. And, and I think this is sort of a fundamental and necessary part of that, that, that in the same way that government is a fundamental and necessary part of sort of humanity and society. So people don't only write in saying, hey, I've been hurt. I know that you have a, a very lovely story about a, another request <laughs> that you've, you've had that is very cute. So I can't resist if you can tell that story. Absolutely. I so Discord again communications platform um where where people will meet each other, people will find partners to to game and and do stuff like that. Honestly, one of the most the most heartwarming experience that I ever had was that in sort of my capacity doing trust and safety legal, I would see a lot of the requests that came in, or all of the requests that came in on the legal side as well. And a couple of years ago, there was a request that came in that said, hey, can I just get you to say that you're not a international marriage broker? And my first response, I was like, uh, I mean, we're, we're not, but, but why? Like, how, <laughs> how is this relevant to anything? Like, who, who are you sending this to? What's going on? And the person who wrote in responded and was just like, oh, yeah, hey, um, sorry. So, you know, I actually met someone on Discord and I'm an American. They're not an American. And as part of the, the fiancé visa process, the State Department actually asks where you met the person and of course whether or not they are a marriage broker. And so I just, you know, need something from you on like official letterhead that that says that you're not. And it was just it was delightful, right? Because I think it it really I think was this amazing example of like yes, this is the good that happens, right? This is the good that these these platforms can enable in the world. These people would not have met without Discord. And so uh, yeah, one of the, the just it made me positively, you know, I was delighted, uh, wrote back, of course, a, a, a official form that was like, no, Discord is not a marriage broker. We don't do that. We have never done that. We will never do that. And then, of course, a, a nice congratulations to them as well. 
That I gotta say, that is delightful and absolutely brought a smile to my face. That in a podcast where we we joke a lot that uh, everything we talk about is incredibly depressing. <laughs> so thank you for sharing it. <laughs> so we want to talk about the specifics of audio content moderation, but before we get to that, so one of the other things that makes Discord interesting is the revenue model. It's not ad-driven. That sort of makes sense. It would be a bit odd for ads to pop up in the the middle of real-time audio conversations. Evelyn and I have joked about asking our our editor uh, to edit in an ad here, um, which is pretty tempting, but I think we'll (laughs) hold off for now. But so one of the shifts in the conversation around content moderation has been this I think broad realization that there's no possibility of eliminating all quote unquote bad content or even what that content is. Um, And so there's a lot of focus on the business model. And there's an argument that, you know, ad driven business models tend toward optimizing for engagement. So platforms, you know, prioritize inflammatory and extreme content to increase the time that users are on site and time to advertise. Obviously, though, uh, Discord, which is not ad-driven, still had content moderation problems. So how much of a difference do you think the business model makes? Oh, man, that's a really, really good question. I mean, so I I think certainly the heart of it is that, right, at at some scale where, you know, you're you're north of a million um, users, you're really just dealing with, like, humanity issues, right? You're, you're not necessarily dealing with anything issues, right? Like, what you're dealing with fundamentally is that people disagree with each other. People have different worldviews and people have different uh, tolerances or, or even people have different standards for what is tolerable or acceptable or, or reasonable. So uh, to your point, I think that there is an underlying sort of trust and safety function that will exist at any company that deals with user-generated content of more than, you know, I don't know, 100,000 people. I think, though, that it does feel at least potentially like there is a difference between sort of the ad-generated, the the ad revenue and and the not-ad revenue, because I think ultimately it actually goes into a lot of the product, right? It, It is about what you're building the product for and what your feedback loops are around the product. And so I think one of the things that I would say is that if you are building like ad supported products, then to your to your comment, right, like you are generally building for more engagement, more engagement means more engagement across the board. And and again, human beings love their polarization and their polarized engagement. And so if, you know, you as a product manager, you're, you're building something and you're looking at it, you're like, hey, like what I'm optimizing here for is eyeballs and time on site. I think inherently, unless you build sort of stops to prevent that, you are going to be driving more sort of extreme rhetoric and content. I think if you don't have that, right, and your metrics are not necessarily driven in terms of like number of eyeballs and instead are, are these people deriving sort of long-term value, right? This is Discord is a subscription model. And part of that model is, do people want to be here? Do they enjoy being on Discord, right? And it's not necessarily, oh, how many minutes are you spending on Discord? And it's not, oh, like, right, like how many eyeballs see a particular piece of content? It is, do you sort of, I think, as a holistic whole, enjoy your experience here such that you are willing to pay us a small amount per month? I, I think that does lead to a difference in in the product models. And I think that product model difference and how those PMs are incentivized makes a difference on how much extremism, how much sort of right up to the borderline violating content exists. 
Okay, so let's talk about audio content moderation specifically. Audio social media spaces are all the rage. The hot app of the summer last year was Clubhouse, which, by the way, has around 10 million users to Discord's 140 plus million. So I'm not quite sure why Clubhouse gets all the attention, except that, of course, I am sure, which is that the media loves to talk about itself. But anyway, excitement about Clubhouse seems to have retreated a little bit, but that's not because interest in audio social media is is dipping. If anything, the opposite. There's barely a platform that isn't spinning up an audio feature. Uh, Twitter has spaces, Facebook is launching live audio, Reddit is reportedly exploring something similar. I want to say, like, congrats, guys, you've reinvented the conference call. Uh, Quinta characteristically tells me it's more like recreating the Agora. Whatever your analogy of choice, (laughs) what is different about content moderation of audio versus the usual context that we talk about it on this podcast, mainly the the context that we've explored, which is text-based platforms like the Facebook newsfeed, tweets, what should all these new entrants to your old haunting ground know about audio <laughs> content moderation? Well, first, I, I have to mention, actually, that Discord, I think about a week, maybe two weeks ago, also launched Stages, which is which is its version. Ha-ha, um, it is the so... Agora. <laughs> Um, so, so no, no shortage of, of competitors. Yeah. Oh man, this is such a meaty and, and interesting and, and I think actually very hard thing, which is that there are a number of ways it's different, right? I think just at the top, I think, let me break down the the sort of basics and then we can talk a little bit about, I think the challenges, the basics are that audio carries a lot more information than text does, right? Text, you, you get all of it. You have it easily encoded. It is like relatively short. It is relatively compact. It is very packageable. You can store lots of text very cheaply, right? And so everyone does. It's sort of a, it's a very known quantity in a lot of ways. Audio, if nothing else, includes tone as a piece of information, right? It's encoding requires much more data and it is going to be much more unique. And so, right, from just a, like, how are you storing the data perspective, it is like a difference on a order of magnitude plus on the, are you able to parse it like easily is, is the other point, right? And so this is, and I think this is the challenge that really everyone is running into these days. If you sort of look at just the sort of commercially available text moderation platforms, there's probably a dozen, actually, there's probably more than that now, but some of them have been around for quite a while and everyone, right, like sort of understands, and this is getting a little bit into the technical weeds, but right, like you, you have the sort of not very sophisticated, like regex filtering of bad words, right? Where you're like, Hey, I don't, I don't want this racial slur to appear. I can block that. That's like very easy, very sort of low level technology all the way up into your AI ML driven systems where they've analyzed, you know, a couple billion words and they say, okay, this statement is bad. And and those are reasonable at the moment. That body doesn't really exist on the voice side. And so there's no real voice platform, certainly no third party sort of like voice moderation platform that says, yes, I can come in, analyze all of your voice real time and tell you who's doing, who's, who's engaging in hate speech or who's engaging in a threat, for example. So I think that's one of the the sort of big difficulties around it. I think the other thing is that, right, like it is it really just the difference between like digital and analog context, right? If you are a trust and safety, this is operationally focus. If you're a trust and safety employee, you can scan through a conversation that maybe spans, I don't know, a couple hours. You can do an investigation on someone's account pretty quickly. 
if you're, you know, in a clubhouse session and someone's like, hey, someone said a bad thing, I don't know, somewhere around the 25 to 30 minute mark, you're listening to that for at least, you know, the five minutes, right? If not more than that, you probably want to listen to a little bit more than that for context. That is sort of a limiting factor. So I, I think fundamentally part of it is that Clubhouse really was the like audio has been around in a lot of these spaces for a long time to, to, to your points, right? Like this is, it's not like we were suddenly like guys, like <laughs> I have something brand new. It's called talking to each other, but I think historically it has mostly been either one-to-one or it has been in a B2B, a business to business context. Right. And so in both of those cases, sort of your content moderation issues are lower. I think now with, with Clubhouse, especially, and now everyone's like, Hey, there's a lot of interest in that particular type of engagement where you have a, you know, some people are the host, but anyone can join it. It, it could potentially go to anyone and it's open to anyone. I, I think we are seeing this sort of like new wave of content moderation issues. And I strongly suspect right? Like every company will have to deal with these on their own spaces. I mean, I, for one, am very curious how they will respond to this because you can imagine, right? Like text is scalable to 10,000 rows or 10 million messages in a way that audio is not scalable if you have 10,000 rooms going on at the same time. And how much of this has to do with audio versus text and sort of ephemeral live audio versus recorded audio? So that's a great question. It's it's actually interesting because arguably, right, like text is sort of forever, right? If someone says something bad on Twitter and Twitter doesn't get to it and, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's a Twitter account that has no followers, you can still access it a year later and you can be like, oh my God, there's something bad here. I need to report this or someone should have done something about this, right? Like that text lasts forever. With these audio spaces that are sort of, right, like these, 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 I guess they are conferences effectively, right? Like that are happening sort of ephemerally. Hypothetically, your blast radius is actually much lessened. It's only the people in the calls that are, that are hearing it. I mean, very... I actually saw it on Twitter this morning. There's been some reports of some more anti-Semitic clubhouse rooms. And it's really hard because for me, I'm like, well, I I can't verify that, right? And I don't know if clubhouse can now verify that given that the room presumably is over. It sort of happened and it may have injured the people inside that room, but all anyone else has are, are secondhand reports of it. So I, it's this, it's, I think it's this sword that cuts both ways, right? On one hand, the blast radius is smaller. You can't like you know, retweet this terrible thing and have it go to millions or billions of people. On the other hand, however, right, it means that the people that are in that room are potentially the only people that are able to report this thing. And if you are doing a bad thing, maybe you can evade enforcement just by effectively keeping your room short and doing it over and over. Yeah, although I do think that there's a really important conversation to be had that we've barely started yet about, do we really want the same standards for content moderation or trust and safety across every platform and every kind of affordance. Like it might be that we have different standards for, you know, text that's forever and sitting there and ephemeral content, which is, you know, as you said, talking to each other online. And so it's not clear to me that, you know, we necessarily want uniformity across all of the different, you know, platform types, but we've barely started that conversation yet. So I I expect that to be something that we explore more in in coming years. One of the things that 
you were talking about just then about you know being able to verify if something was said and also the scalability of content moderation in audio what one of the things that that gets to is you know because it's not necessarily realistic or desirable to have platform moderators sitting and listening in on every conversation that happens on the platform to make sure that you know nothing that infringes the guidelines is said and because automated tools as we were exploring is are, are so much blunter and still basically inadequate and not up to the task. A lot more of the responsibility falls to the channel and, and server moderators and the community in general. And this is another argument that is increasingly dominant in content moderation conversations right now. So because platforms suck at content moderation and we don't really want them to be the arbiters of truth. I mean, Sean, no offense, you seem like a really nice guy. You know, I'd, I'd trust you, but <laughs> maybe we don't want you just like being the authoritarian dictator that gets to decide all of the rules. We should just re-decentralize the web and throw a lot of power back to the people. I am in general a little skeptical of this argument. I think that the history of the last few years has actually been a call for more centralized gatekeeping of online spaces rather than less because you know people suck and sometimes the community actually wants to say dangerous and and sucky things but I'm curious what you think I, I imagine you know maybe you also would have been happy to offload more of the responsibility back to users uh, what do you think of the idea of decentralization and maybe you could also talk us through what that decentralized model looks like on discord yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good question. I mean, it it certainly it is the the flavor of of the week. It it feels like it is a conversation this is like a sine wave, right? Like it happens, I don't know, it pops up with with regularity every 6 months or so and everyone's like, "But what if we had more decentralization?" I, I mean, I think the the interesting thing there is that and I guess the way that I would phrase it is that I think that if you look at sort of and, and this is, I guess, very deeply philosophical. But I think if you look at the role of governments, and and certainly, you know, with with a little bit probably of a uh, Western bias here, but if you look at, I think, successful governments, and you look at the the values that that they espouse and that they uphold, right? There is this like freedom of expression is is solidly in there obviously to to different degrees right america and europe have <laughs> very different views on on exactly how uh, i guess sacred that right is um if you will and how it balances up against other principles but i think that the fundamental sort of idea is that that the government is here to to protect these these principles and i think that if you apply that sort of on an online space right i think what i would say is that the more decentralized the sort of platforms are certainly the less ability of course right you have to control that and i think that the question really is like does it fall below a certain standard of i don't know if acceptability is the right word but does it fall below a certain standard of um, i guess what what is even like workable in a society right and and i think you know i would call back to for example the the paradox of tolerance here, right, and and those ideas. But I think that the fundamental sort of nature of it is that if you sort of push this, and there was a, some discussion actually in in side channel yesterday about this. If you push this to sort of the middleware, and you're like, hey, I'm going to let anything go, and then there's there's this sort of middle layer, right, of software or what have you, where you can choose to customize your experience. Like, yes, in one sense, you're you're pushing that responsibility onto your users, and you're allowing users perhaps with good tooling to customize exactly how their experiences want to be. I think the real question, though, is like, right, shouldn't you as the government be setting a floor to what 
that acceptable behavior is, right? Like at, at some level, I think the real question is, is it reasonable for any platform to say, ah, yes, like you can say, uh, you can make death threats because if the user wants to opt out of it, they can just opt out of it. Like that feels wrong to me personally, because I, I think that the, the platform, the government has a responsibility to step in. I don't think that that responsibility, you know, extends to expressing mild disagreements or even major disagreements, right? But I do think that, right, the ability and and maybe the the sort of optimal nature for me is a government that protects users in a way where they feel comfortable, they feel safe in expressing themselves. And that is, I think, just not status quo on a lot of these major platforms right now, that if you are a minority, for example, you do not feel safe necessarily expressing yourself because when you do, you immediately get all sorts of like vicious harassment. Would the world be better if those people had tools to better sort of save themselves? Like, I, I think so. Yes. Right. And there are initiatives like Block Party is one of the apps I think that is currently in stealth that sort of aims to do some of that. But I think the fundamental responsibility should actually lie on the platform itself. I just want to say that with that reference to side channel which is a discord server run by a bunch of substack authors we actually managed to get our real-time ad in uh, after all although i will say you know <laughs> disclaimer the side channel is not sponsoring this podcast we are not optimizing for engagement um that was just a pure coincidence that wasn't meant to be an ad i'm sorry <laughs> no 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 not, not at all <laughs> um so i want to ask you about ai vice recently reported that uh, intel is launching an application called uh, somewhat amusingly bleep, which can recognize and redact hate speech in real time. And apparently there's going to be a an interface where you can slide up and down and toggle how much racism and xenophobia you want to hear, <laughs> which on the one hand sounds a little dystopian. On the other hand, I, I do, I have been wondering, you know, isn't that basically just the audio equivalent of the Twitter mute function? But I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you think of tools like these? And what is the capability of automated moderation when it comes to audio? There's definitely a lot of research going into it. I'm reasonably familiar with the uh, with the Intel offering. I mean, I think that part of it, and this is just sort of generally from what I know, in most cases, what's happening is that they're taking the audio and they're doing a transcribe right into text, and then they're running the AI on the text. And so it sort of goes back to that earlier conversation. You lose like some of the tone that exists, right? You lose some of the the emphasis that that exists, right? It, it's a very different statement. If I say, "Haha, I'm gonna kill someone today," and you know, I'm gonna kill someone today, right? And I think that's something that most, to my knowledge, maybe none of the current sort of AI systems that exist do that. They're all sort of taking that, turning it into text, and then saying, "Okay, is the text violative?" So I don't think the AI is quite there yet. But I think it's it sort of like, even if we're looking at just like text AI, right? I think that context is still incredibly hard for for the AI systems that everyone, you know, has the ability to sort of purchase or that everyone is sort of implementing right now. I think it's still hard because you can study all of the data in the world and and see these like billions of interactions. But it turns out that like human interaction, right, is is complex and is frequently subtle. And if someone is using a specific word, right, like they may be using that word as a racial slur. They may be using that word as part of a rap lyric. They may be using that word as a member of the in-group. They may be using that word in sort of a journalistic sense, right? And I think it's that context that is really hard. And so 
in general, I think this is, you can see this just from, you know, Facebook's transparency reports. I think you can see this sort of from all of the vendors out there, like the AI that exists is going to be overbroad. It is going to take down things that it should not take down. And I think it is just a sort of a question, right, of whether I think most companies are okay with that because it turns out that there's no, you know, there's no, there's no liability for taking things down when you didn't need to take them down. And I think in a lot of cases in the trust and safety space, you would rather have taken something down, right, that you needed to take down rather than leave something up. And so it's it's a little bit disappointing, I think, in in some cases that that is sort of the default model, but that does feel like the default and current model, and and I'm not sure that that's going to change anytime soon. So Discord saw a big jump in violent extremism takedowns in the second half of 2020. Uh, the team proactively removed 1,504 servers for violent extremism in the second half of 2020, which was a nearly 93% increase from the first half of the year. The transparency report noted that this increase can be attributed to the expansion of our anti-extremism efforts, as well as growing trends in the online extremism space. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. What is driving that increase? Is it more violent extremism? Is it more demand for greater moderation of extremism? Or is it something to do with Discord finding itself hosting more violent extremism because the other platforms are finally sort of cracking down? Or is it some combination of all of the above? Almost certainly some combination of all of the above. I think that, uh, you know, the uh, the last half of 2020 was <laughs> an exciting time for America. And I think that that right? Like the inherent sort of cultural and societal, I guess, background, right? Certainly played a part to some of that. I think also the fact that, right? And and so both speaking of, I would say very directly, the political climate and the election and all of that, and especially I would say also the post-election sort of interactions, but also the fact that COVID meant that everyone was staying inside and being more online. So I think it was a, a measure of that. The other thing I think that I would sort of posit is that as platforms get bigger and as uh, they have more resources, right? They're also going to devote more resources to this. And so I think this this actually sort of goes back to one of the fundamental difficulties of transparency reports, interesting enough, which is that you can, you can of course, report on what you know, but to, I guess, use the, you know, Rumsfeldism, right? There are a lot of unknown unknowns out there. And it is always hard, I think, in situations like this, because when you say, oh, yes, like we used to, you know, remove this amount and now we remove this amount, there's always this question of like, okay, does that mean that the activity itself drastically increased or did you just get better at catching it and you weren't catching it before? And, you know, I don't work there anymore and I don't have a very good guess as to what that is. But I, I think, you know, in almost all cases, it is going to be a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, right? You put more resources into finding it. Maybe you're able to sort of like investigate more deeply in certain cases, right? At the same time as the world is reacting and maybe there is more of it than there was to find. So given that you're both a lawyer and a trust and safety professional, there's no way we can let you go without quizzing you about everyone's favorite statute, Section 230. Um, so one of the, the major arguments that defenders of the statute make is that any reforms would harm competition because 
big platforms like Facebook and Google would be able to afford to comply with basically anything. But little platforms like, say, Discord would struggle and startups would obviously have even more difficulty. On the other hand, the absence of Section 230 reform hardly seems to be constraining the big three. So what do you make of that debate and the 230 debate more generally? Woo. (laughs) Oh, man. Many, many thoughts on it. I mean, I think the easiest sort of analog to make here is actually if you look at GDPR, right, and the effect of the GDPR on Facebook and Google and and their advertising revenues in in Europe, it feels pretty, it, it looks pretty clear. And I think the studies have shown that, in fact, yes, like after GDPR came out, they changed a couple of things, made a lot more money maybe paid a little bit in fines, right? But broadly, it was beneficial to to the big market players. And I think that that feels like what will happen with 230 as well. Because at the end of the day, right, like if there, if something comes down, whether, you know, <laughs> uh, whether it's earn it or packed or, or what have you, right? But I think if there is a regulation that says, you know, you have to do X or you have to do Y, yeah, at scale, they certainly, right, like the big social media, the big players have much more of it to deal with. But again, they can throw a billion dollars at it and then effectively consider it dealt with, right? I think that for the small, for the small startups out there, for the for the non-incumbents, right? For the companies that are, you know, maybe in this sort of medium space where you have some users, but you're still trying to, you know, figure things out. You're still trying to figure out like what your company will look like over the next couple of years. I think it is a much it, it is just much harder. And I think that certainly I've seen hopefully not very successful bills that would effectively, you know, legislate companies like Discord out of existence. So I I do think that that is a very real danger. I think there are, you know, there's a lot of ink that's been shed about the need and the desires for Section 230 reform. I think that there are credible arguments on both sides, but I think that the main danger that I do see is that in a sort of inartfully drafted law is going to hurt the medium companies and and smaller much more so than it will sort of rein in the the large companies. And I will just note that you don't work at Discord any longer, so that's not from self-interest. You're not towing the platform line in saying that. That's uh that's that's based on experience. So that's that's really fascinating. Content moderation has has changed a lot in your time working on it, from being something that Discord was like, huh, maybe we should hire a Sean, to being something that almost all platforms get in trouble for sooner or later and are starting to have to think of as something more like infrastructure that they build in from the start. There's more pressure, spotlight, and I think innovation in this space than ever before. So it's an exciting time. And I'm curious where you think you see this heading. Like if we look 5, 10, even 20 years down the track, what do you think the future of content moderation looks like? Or do you think that we're just going to be stuck in this doom loop uh, or what you call the sine curve of, of content moderation debates forever? What a great question. I, I think it's it's so hard, right? Because I think it depends on such a crazy confluence of factors that every time some major thing goes wrong, there is now more, for example, political interest in doing something about it. There's more, you know, press coverage on it. The the tech lash is real. And and we've seen, you know, coverage of missteps where I think before it would have been fine. So I, I think we are building towards a, a sort of crescendo of, of something, of action in some context. 
But I think it's so hard to sort of read the tea leaves and understand what that is, because I think that it it is very hard to imagine sort of like small corrections from from the part of legislatures. They they typically, historically at least, like don't do small corrections. It's usually reasonably big ones. And and I think there's a lot of concern about what that might look like, how to affect business models, how to affect companies, how to affect the industry at large, right? I think fundamentally part of what you're seeing to your point, like, yes, I'm seeing, I'm seeing stealth companies that have raised, you know, seven, 10 million that have not launched anything are already looking for trust and safety leaders. And that a hundred percent would not have happened five years ago. And I think it is exactly because of the media interest, the societal interest, the legal and, and regulatory interests there. So I think we're starting to see, and I think this is also sort of like pretty, in some sense, like repeats history, right? Like you're starting to see the self-regulation come in. I think the question is to like, you know, to what degree will that self-regulation get organized? What it'll look like? And ultimately, I think the question really is like, will it be sufficient, right? Will it be sufficient to deter the legal and regulatory sort of scrutiny that exists where where there's a great desire to do something? I think the other thing that's really hard about this space, though, is that, right, like this is coincident with also the increasing, you know, balkanization of the internet, right? That this thing that we saw from the Yahoo case, gosh, like 20 years ago, right? I think is, right, like increasingly rearing its its head and you're starting to see all sorts of, right, like data localization laws. And I think more importantly, and I think the GDPR really prompted this in some sense, right? The ability for national or supranational organizations to see, well, this is what I want the internet to look like in this place, right? You see court cases that are being used to test this, you know, trademark cases in Canada, cases, of course, all over Europe, right? Where it's like, well, what is the extraterritorial reach of, you know, a specific case that says that you have to take insert thing here down? So I think the difficulty really is that these two things meet up in a weird and and possibly unhappy place, right? Where companies will continue to self-regulate to some degree, um, some probably more successful than others, and maybe that changes the market. Maybe it doesn't. I'm not clear that the incumbents will be very easily, you know, changed. And then, right, like how that interacts with it, you know, if each country says, well, this is actually what I want the internet to look like in this country, sort of what the effect that is that has, I think, on on the internet at large and on all of these, both, I think, the big companies as well as the sort of like medium and, of course, the smaller startups. All right. I think that's all the time we have. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be here. And, and thank you for all the work that you do. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and this is actually his last episode with us as he moves on to a new gig, so we wanted to thank him for making us sound halfway decent and wish him all the best. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. <laughs>